heroic events by those on the battlefields of our world have always fascinated the human spirit. There are literally hundreds of movies on World War I and World War II and the Vietnam War and on and on. I'm convinced that if Alexander the Great had a video camera, we'd be watching some of the bravest acts even today replayed in our generation. One of the ancient favorites would have been the last stand of the Spartans in 480 B.C. Their courage created a legend that's still talked about today. When Xerxes led 100,000 Persians against 5,000 Greeks, they thought that they would simply overrun them, but the Greeks just would not give in without a fight. In fact, one of the Greek scouts reported, and I quote him, such was the number of the Persians, he reported to his soldiers, that when they shoot their arrows, the sun is darkened by their multitude. A soldier nearby named Dionysius responded by saying to all the soldiers around him, our friend gives us good news. If the Persians darken the sun with their arrows, we will be able to fight in the shade. What an attitude to face 100,000 enemy soldiers. It's one of history's famous last stands. If you spend any time in Texas, as I have in seminary, you saw a lot of the memorabilia from the Alamo. In 1836, American settlers were fighting for independence from Mexico, and 6,000 soldiers came to push down the rebellion. There were only 188 defenders holed up in this old Spanish mission we know as the Alamo, when given the opportunity to surrender. However, they responded, our flag is flying, we shall never surrender or retreat. And they held off this massive army for about 12 days until they were all captured and killed. As brave as it might sound to stand against an army of soldiers or to fight off warriors under the sky with shade created by a hundred thousand or so arrows, or maybe shoot it out through the windows of an old mission. Nothing compares to the true courage of standing alone for holiness or the truth of the gospel. And you usually don't have people around you rooting for you, do you? When you take your stand for Christ, you might be there right now. You might be the only one standing for the truth of the gospel in your world. I have stood in the sanctuary of John Knox and gazed up at his pulpit and imagined what it must have been like to preach against the atrocities of Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary. No soldiers to cheer him on. I have stood in John Wesley's chapel and, and imagined what it must have been like to preach with great courage. He was a lone voice. In fact, on one occasion, he preached to his congregation against the evils of slavery And the congregation responded by rioting and breaking every pew to pieces. Can you imagine that scene? I would have loved to have visited the courtroom in Worms where Martin Luther in 1521 was called to recant before the highest political and religious leaders of his day. And he stood all alone and he said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I can do none other. Those are truly famous last stands. It's one thing to face trouble and anguish and perhaps even death surrounded by friends and admirers. It's another thing to face it all alone. Like John the Baptist who would point his finger at Herod and call him a sinning adulterer for marrying his brother's former wife. 
and he would lose his life. Or like Jeremiah the prophet who would deliver the news, albeit very unfortunate and unwelcomed and unwanted, that they would be overthrown by the Babylonians. And the result was they threw Jeremiah in an empty well where he sunk up to his waist in the, in the mud. The chief example, of course, would be our own dear Lord who truly stood alone with no one to cheer him on. In fact, even his own father abandoned him at those dark hours of divine judgment. No one has ever been alone as he. There's something especially courageous and admirable and rare about someone who stands alone for the glory and honor and truth of God, isn't there? Perhaps you're there even now in that dormitory. You're the only one standing. Perhaps you're there in those lines of cubicles going from window to window and you're the only one that cares about Christ. Maybe you're the only one in your family that acknowledges Jesus Christ. To them, that name is a curse word. To you, it is your Redeemer. And you know what it's like to stand alone. We're about to watch the last stand of Job The last barrage of arrows will darken the sky and head straight for his heart. He will refuse, though, to surrender his integrity and his character, and he will stand alone. Job will deliver his longest speech. It is his final speech before Elihu, and then God will speak. The hush of heaven is almost over. If there was ever any doubt about Job clinging to his integrity or to his character, to his principles, to his trust in God, albeit confused, albeit filled with with bitterness at times, these chapters we're going to look at today will settle the score once and for all. Satan will lose his wager. Job will not turn away from God. Bildad, in verse 25, delivers his final speech. It's really a denunciation of Job. He speaks of the power of God, in verse 2. Dominion and all belong to him who establishes peace in the heights. Is there any number to his troops, and upon whom does his light not rise? He speaks truth as he refers to not only the power of God, but the perfection of God, in verse 4. How then can a man be just with God? How can he be clean who was born of a woman? Job, how do you know anybody could ever stand before God who was holy perfection? Now, Job has already answered that back in chapter 19 where he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will one day stand upon the earth. Now, there's a last stand for you. That'll be great to see and part of. Bildad concludes his denunciation by not only talking about the power of God, the perfection of God, but also the purity of God, verse 5. Even if the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man that maggot and the son of man that worm. That's encouraging. Good place to stop. Job, you're a maggot and you're a worm. No wonder Job responds in the next chapter, chapter 26, verse Two, with the words, what a help you are to the weak. <laughs> Verse three, the latter part, what helpful insight you've abundantly provided. You know, it's amazing. He still keeps a sense of humor, even in these agonizing times. Bildad's speech was, was reverent, but it was irrelevant. 
He revealed the depravity of man, but he did not offer the deliverance of God. Listen, the the primary message of the Bible is not human depravity, but justifying deliverance through the cross work of Christ. The amazing thing is that we are worms, but that Christ died for worms. The amazing thing to me, the grace of God is that he rescued a maggot like me. You say, that's a terrible self-image, Stephen. No, it's the truth. It's the truth. Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this vile corruption, this body of my death? But he didn't stop there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the amazing part of the gospel of Christ. We are a company of worms that will one day burst forth with the glory and splendor of glorified bodies and purified spirits. But until then, we are at our best to never completely forget our worst. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? The new editions of hymnals changed those words to, for sinners such as I. Sounds better, doesn't it? I mean, sinner's bad, but it's better than a worm. Now, Isaac Watts said it well. The problem isn't that Bildad said something wrong. The problem is that he leaves Job without hope. Job, you are a maggot and a worm. That's true. But what about the grace of God? You are a worm, Job. And, and the irony of it, ladies and gentlemen, in fact, it's amazing, he responds with tongue-in-cheek humor, is that Job at that point in time could have looked down at his skin, which was literally crawling with worms. And he could say, oh, it's never been more true. I am a worm. I am covered with worms. God, you are not worth following. I'm throwing in the towel. But instead of beginning a diatribe against the unworthiness of God, Job instead begins to describe the greatness of God. It's amazing to me. In fact, in Job's long response to Bildad and these other men, Job will repeat five questions that have still echoed down through the quarters of time. From 4,000 years ago till today, these are still perceptive and pertinent. Questions. And so we're going to use that sort of as an outline, those five questions as we work our way through. Can you believe it? Six chapters today. That, that's a world record for me. Six chapters. But it's going to mean I've got to cover six chapters. And I'm just going to touch down every once in a while with that plane, like a pilot who's learning how to fly. Touches down, takes off. Touches down and takes off. But you'll get the, the main points. Question number one. Who can understand the greatness of God? In verse 5, Job invites Bildad to, to explore the deepest recesses of the earth. Go down to the grave, to Sheol. Then, when you've gotten out of the bottom, head north. Go straight up and, and out into the atmosphere and beyond, and you will, you'll just begin to see the greatness of our God. From the lowest point of imagination to the highest point, God is over all. And guess what? Verse 14, he says, when you see all of that, you're, you're only seeing the fringes of his ways. 
Such a great and colorful phrase. These are the fringes of his ways. No matter how deeply you you travel or how high you ascend, when you reach the outer limits, you are only at the outer edges of our great God. You'd have to travel a long way to get to the core of his greatness. You only hear the whispers of his sovereignty, he says. Job says, listen, Bill Dad, you, you think you have this thing figured out. Your trouble is you think you've figured God out. You haven't even gotten to the outer edges of his, the fringes of his sovereignty. Who can understand him? Bildad's problem and the problem of every generation is they, they recreate God to become something understandable and manageable. We trivialize God. We make him small. A.W. Tozer warned us in his powerful little book I'm rereading, The Knowledge of the Holy. In it, he writes this paragraph, so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. He said, we do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them, undimmed and undiminished, that noble concept of God. Relief, true relief in suffering is bound up in recognizing the great mystery of God who does all things well and right. One author wrote it this way, whenever there are sores on your body and they are running with pus like Job's and the fever will not go down, the perspective of Job is where you need to be. I don't understand, but I have a sovereign God of the universe who does, and he does all things well. He is in charge. I am the clay. He is the potter. I am the disciple. He is the Lord. I am the sheep. He is the shepherd. I am the servant. He is the master. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, let suffering return you to a high view of this majestic and mysterious God who acts without explanation, who moves beyond our understanding, and all we can grasp of this majestic God in this brief period of human history or our own lives, which is so brief, is that we are only merely coming to the fringes of his activity the outer edges of his greatness. Don't follow a God you completely understand, for you will be following a God of your own making. No wonder Job says, for as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the last stand of a desperate man. I will not throw in my trust in this God whom I am at times embittered against, confused by this God that is beyond my comprehension. What follows in chapter 27 is the logical question of Job as he asks, 
who can understand God? He would then logically say, well, why does mankind ignore this, this, the coming judgment of this God? I mean, how can you not trust him? How foolish is mankind to ignore God? Look at verse 8. For what is the hope of the godless when he is cut off, when God requires his life? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the what? The judgment, the intuitive understanding of mankind, they know they're accountable. They run from it. Why do they run from God? At the heart of it, he says in verse 21, the east wind will indeed catch him, the judgment of God that is. And he is gone for it whirls him away from his place, for it will hurl at him without sparing. He will surely try to flee from its power. That's what the unbeliever says. I can get away with it. I can outrun God. He'll let me in. He'll overlook. He'll slide it under the carpet. And so rather than dealing with the justice of God and the gospel of Christ, they foolishly believe that in the end, God's just going to say, well, come on in. Never mind. As Job takes his last stand, he wonders, as everyone who suffers wonders. And here's his next question. Where can I find wisdom to handle the trials of life? James chapter 1 addressed this situation. In light of being surrounded by various trials, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you, right? We could add, if we were writing that text, he'll give it to you just in time and a little bit at a time. That seems to be how it comes in. Well, in Job chapter 28, Job is asking the question, where can you find true wisdom? And he gives a a longer answer than, than James. The first thing he says is that you cannot mine wisdom from the earth. Look at verse 13. Or go back to verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep, if you could mine down, says it's not in me. And the sea, if you could plumb its depth, says it is not with me. Not only can you not mine wisdom from the earth, you cannot buy wisdom from other people. Verse 15. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ufer or in precious onyx or sapphire, gold and glass, and and on and on. In other words, you cannot buy this. You say, well, I don't have gold and silver anyway. Maybe it'll be on sale. No. No blue light special going for wisdom. Sorry. Walmart doesn't sell it. Sam's doesn't even stock it, if you can imagine that. You cannot find wisdom on the shelves of the earth. You can't buy it from people. So where do you get it from? Both Job and James answer here. Job answers in verse 23. God understands its way and he knows its place. He knows where it is. Look down at verse 28. To man he says... Behold, look, the fear of the Lord, there's wisdom. To depart from evil, there's insight, that's wisdom. Here's the secret unfolded. Wisdom is actually a byproduct. And you gain wisdom as you do two things. Not after you do two things, not before you do two things, but as you are practicing these two things. 
Job gives them to us. First, when you worship God with total reverence. That's what he means when he says, look, the fear of the Lord, there, there's wisdom. When you worship God with reverence. Secondly, when you, when you walk with God with transparent obedience. That's what he means. When you depart from evil, that's understanding. You take life seriously. You live life for the glory of God. Wisdom comes to those who are in the process of worshiping God and walking with God. When there is surrender and submission, you discover wisdom. Now, our problem is we want wisdom, but we want it without surrender. We want to know how to handle life, but we don't want to surrender that life to God. And then we wonder why we lack insight and wisdom. Now at the end of these verses, at the end of chapter 28, most believe that there's a pause. And if you look at the beginning of the text, you can tell that something stopped Job and he was finished and then he he, he begins again. Many Bible scholars seem to all agree, as I've read them, that that he's waiting for Zophar to speak. Zophar's the third in line, and he's spoken after Bildad each time, and in this third round it would be expected that Zophar would, would now speak. No speech. He never does. We don't know if he, he walked off in disgust because Job didn't listen to his second speech. More than likely, he's still there, but he knows he has nothing more to say. But Job does. And so he launches in, in verse 29, with answering another question, another very perceptive question. How do you define happiness? How do you define happiness? Job in this chapter does something he's never done before. He leans back almost, must have just settled into the ash pile, got a little more comfortable if he could, and, and said, let me tell you about the good old days. Let me tell you what life used to be like. Now, you know, it's not unlike people who suffer. They love to talk about the past, don't they? When life was, was easier, maybe carefree, let, let's just take a walk down nostalgia lane. Now, as he walks down this lane, he actually defines happiness. It's not one of these elements, it's all six of them. Let me give you six ingredients of happy living. First, there was an awareness of God's presence and care. Look at verse 2, chapter 29. Oh, that I were as in months gone by. Those good old days. What made him good, Job? Well, those were the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Notice verse 4, when the friendship of God was, was over my tent. I mean, it was obvious that God, had, God lived on my street. In fact, his tent hovered over mine. There are plenty of texts that inform us that Job believes God is still aware of his needs. But in the good old days, it was obvious, right? You have your own testimony of that. Maybe right now it's difficult and you can think back when it just used to be so clear. God was right there. Job says, in happier times, I had a 
had an appreciation for whatever God gave me. That'd be the second element, an appreciation for whatever God gives. He says in verse 5, my children were all around me. My family's all there. And I love this phrase, my steps were bathed in butter. Huh. Some of you can't eat butter anymore, can you? And you remember the good old days when you could lather it on thick. I thought, you know, here he's talking about a rarity, a special uh, treat because of the lack of refrigeration. He made it, he had to eat it. He says, I, I just, my, my steps were bathed in butter. It's like going to a wedding reception, discovering they've got a table with strawberries and next to it's a big chocolate fountain just coming out. Chunks of pineapple and banana and you can just sit there and you can just dip until your reputation's completely gone. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> Those are good weddings in my estimation. <laughs> I'm setting myself up because I got a daughter who's 20 and you're thinking, I'm coming to her wedding. There be, better be a chocolate fountain. No way, it's too expensive. Uh-uh, I, not mine. I told my daughter that she can have anything at her wedding reception that Chick-fil-A serves. <laughs> Put it all out there. <laughs> And Joe pulls out this one thing, man. This was a delicacy. I, a lady, we started a new greenhouse session on Wednesday nights, and she brought me two dozen donuts with chocolate icing. Some teachers like apples, not me. I just want you to know that. But these donuts were not Krispy Kreme. No, the bar has been raised very high. These were from a bakery that had been made that day. A bakery in Rocky Mount. Believe that? They drive an hour to get here for church and an hour to come, and they still... A big, fresh baked, she's going to get an A in greenhouse. In fact, she doesn't even have to come anymore. She's a member. In fact, she's on the elder board now, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, happiness, obvious, obviously to me, are those succulent donuts with chocolate icing. For him, it was butter. I mean, life was good. Steps bathed in butter. Happiness also to him meant having an opportunity to influence others. He goes deeper here, verse 7, talks about going to the city gate and having the ability to influence others. Happiness included the opportunity to be generous and compassionate, verses 12 to 20. It isn't all just receiving, it's giving. Happiness was found in a place of respect earned by giving godly counsel. Verses 21 to 25. Happiness is awareness of God's presence. It is appreciation for what God gives. It is having an opportunity to influence others. An opportunity to be generous and compassionate toward the needy. And it is found in a place of respect earned by giving godly counsel. This, this chapter is unique to everything Job has said in this book. I believe it merely sets us up for the great grief as he recounts in the next chapter that everything he had, he has now lost. All these wonderful things are gone. 
And so that nostalgic trip just kind of sets us up to hear the agony of Job, who in chapter 30 does nothing more than catalog all of the catastrophic changes in his life. This is what I have lost. I used to have steps bathed in butter, and now I cannot eat anything. I once had my children around me, and my children are gone. I was once in a place of great respect, and and I could give godly influence and counsel to others. But but now look, verse 27 of chapter 30. I'm seething within. I can't relax. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning without comfort. I now stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I used to go there and take the judge's seat. Now I, I cry for help. I beg I've become a brother, verse 29, to jackals and a companion of ostriches. In other words, only the wild animals come to visit me. My skin is corroded. It's falling off me, dead, and my bones burn with fever. Therefore, my harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the sound of those who weep. Here's the point. You would expect Job at this moment to throw in the towel. Maybe you're there too right now. Maybe, maybe you've been there in recent days. You remember the good old days when butter was plentiful, when your children were around you, when God seemed so close. Those were the good old days. Now they're lost Now it's days of affliction, days of pain, days of suffering, days of debt, days of illness, days of abandonment. And now you're like Job. He says, my harp, when it plays, representing his life, it can only mourn. And my flute, whenever I play it, the flute of my life, it it only delivers sounds that sound like sobbing. And weeping. Well, if you can believe it, this is at this moment in time when Job takes his last stand. It is, it is courageous. It is amazing to me. And he becomes for me at this moment, even more than before, an amazing sufferer. Because we're about to see that he will dig in his heels and he will. He will, he will cling to fresh commitments to God. This is not the time when you make fresh resolutions for God. This is exactly what he does here. In chapter 31, he will define for us the answer to this fifth and final question. He's asked questions already like these. Who can understand the greatness of God? Why does mankind ignore the coming judgment of God? Where can you find true wisdom? How do you define happiness? And now number five, how can you develop a life of integrity? And I want to turn around his words because they make, by simple nuance, positive statements on what true integrity is all about. And I want to give you ten of them very quickly. Number one, determine pure boundaries. Determine pure boundaries. Look at verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes 
How then could I gaze at a virgin, a single woman? In other words, integrity is developed by determining ahead of time what you will look at and what you won't look at. And for Job, it it was, even with all of the possibilities that he had, even with all of the opportunities that he had, he says, I refuse to take advantage of my power and my position. I'm going to keep my eyes clean and clear. For us today, the battle for integrity would be a battle with the media. It would be a battle with the internet. It would be a battle with television. At the outset of these ten things, let me say here, to develop integrity, know this, integrity does not happen by accident. Integrity will not sneak up on you. Oh, I didn't expect you. No, integrity is something that must be pursued. It must be developed. It must be desired. And part of the one who truly desires integrity, you will discover in their lives they have developed determined, pure boundaries. They can tell you where they are. They can tell you what they are and where. Develop, secondly, honesty. Verses 5 and 6, he writes in verse 5, If I have walked with falsehood and my, my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. In other words, integrity and truth are sisters They are synonymous. Tell the truth. We live in a world of lies and lying. Be honest in little things and big things. He says, I will be honest. Third, disallow moral compromises. In verses 9 to 11, he candidly talks about resisting the enticement of a married woman. He's spoken earlier of a single woman and how he keeps his eyes pure by not lusting after her. He says here in verse 9, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, if I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife belong to another. On the first count in verse 1, he speaks of someone he's pursuing. and In this account, he's speaking of someone who is pursuing him. He says, I'm not going to lurk by her doorway. I'm not going to leave my business card. I'm not going to give a telephone number away. I'm going to steer clear, is what he's saying. Steer clear. Ladies and gentlemen, especially in this culture where men and women work every day next to each other, there is no such thing as innocent flirting. Don't compromise. Don't make any excuse. Don't say it's nothing. It might be nothing now, but nothings have a way of turning into some things. I have pastored long enough to see marriages destroyed by couples who were involved in the same Bible study. Couples who counseled one another destroyed when partners from both marriages left their spouses for one another. Disallow moral compromises. Don't hang around the door for the wrong reasons. Number four. Integrity defends the disadvantaged. In verses 13 to 15, Job's words can be turned into a positive definition of integrity as one who doesn't take advantage of his power and position to mistreat an employee. 
Those who worked for Job were treated fairly. And those of you that have people working for you, this will be a mark of integrity, that you defend the disadvantaged. You handle them with kindness and with fairness. Number five, you distribute to the needy. In the next few verses, verses 16 to 23, Job will describe a person of integrity as one who will distribute to those who need food and clothing. In fact, he is so emphatic that Eliphaz was wrong, that condemned Job for inhospitable treatment of strangers, of turning orphans away, of refusing to help widows, that he says here in verse 21, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan, because I saw I had support in the gate, in other words, everybody say to me, yeah, Job, that'd be the right thing to do. Let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. Do you think he's serious about his reputation and testimony of integrity? He says, in other words, if I have mistreated a widow or an orphan, let me be disabled. Sixth, a man or a woman of integrity deplores materialism. Verses 24 and 25. Those who put their trust and confidence in gold. He says, that's not me. Number seven, Developing integrity demands that you denounce spiritual compromises. Now, in a rather confusing text, verses 26 to 28, he pulls something out of his culture, those pagans of his day who blew kisses toward their shrines. They wanted to be so reverent toward their false gods that if they didn't have time to go and worship, kneel, pray, give food, or whatever, at least when they walked by, they would blow a kiss toward their God. What Job is saying here is, I have not only bowed at the shrine of a false God, I have not only given, not only have I not given food to them, not only have I not prayed to them, I haven't even nodded at the shrine. I haven't blown a kiss. I haven't done the politically correct thing. You know, we do today. We talk about all the other faiths. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no other faith but faith in God through Christ. We're not to talk about all those other faiths. They're false. But the politically correct, even in the church, blow kisses toward false gods rather than confront and create controversy. Integrity means, number eight, that you display compassion toward the stranger Verses 29 to 32. Number nine, integrity means you decline hypocrisy in all things. Verse 33, he asks, have I covered my transgressions like Adam? Interesting. I know about Adam, he says. He sinned and tried to cover his nakedness. Have I done that? He assumes the answer is no, he hasn't, and people know he hasn't. He refused to play the hypocrite. He's real and genuine. Number 10, Job effectively says in verses 38 to 40, integrity demands that you deny any excuse for greed. He says, I have determined pure boundaries. I have developed honesty. I have disallowed moral compromise. I have defended the disadvantaged. I am distributing to the needy. I deplore materialism. I denounced any spiritual compromise. I display compassion toward others. I decline hypocrisy. And I deny any excuse for greed. 
If you didn't notice, and I'm sure you did just unconsciously, Job covers every possible area of life. Stephen Lawson pointed out in in his commentary that Job's integrity has affected his stewardship life, his thought life, his ethical life, his home life, his work life, his community life, his financial life, his spiritual life, and his social life. He covers everything. And that's so needed today to understand that integrity is not a little part of your life. It is your life. We have been fed the lie that it's possible to be a person of integrity in public but not in private. That is a lie. A lack of integrity in any area is to lack integrity. Job says, take a good look anywhere in my life. Go through my files. Check my internet sites. Interview my employees. Look at my expense accounts. Sift through my bank records. Look at my giving record at church and other charities. Interview my wife. Talk to my neighbors. Ask my business associates. Talk to my closest friends. Dig away. Just like they do when a man runs for political office. Suddenly things surface. He says, I have nothing to hide. You dig away. Check it all out. You will find that I am a person who wants to be, who would like to be, who must be, who pursues nothing less than true integrity. So Job takes his stand. He will not speak again until God speaks. I wonder, though, as we come to the conclusion of this, will you stand wherever you are, whatever your culture or context, will you take your stand for integrity, ultimately for the glory of God? Pray as John Wesley prayed, a pioneer leader in the Great Awakening who prayed in the late 1800s this prayer, and I close with this. He said, I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside by thee. Exalted for thee or brought low by thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily Yield all things to thy pleasure, O glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thou art mine, and I am thine. That's taking a stand. May we do it too. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the testimony of Job, who following this discouraging denunciation and the heightening of his pain, his fever, his boils, his agony, his loss. He clung to fresh commitments. He pursued answers to great questions. He honored you. He gave his life entirely to you. My friend, right right where you're seated... Maybe as we talk about taking a stand, you know immediately what that means. God's Spirit has provoked your heart. You know exactly what that means, what you need to do. 
Maybe in order to take a stand, some friendships have to change. Maybe a relationship has to end. Disciplines have to begin. Another step forward in the direction you've just begun needs to be taken. And you, like John Wesley and Job, centuries before him, says, I will worship you, O great and awesome God. And I will walk with you. Here's my life. It's yours. May this be our prayer, Father, for the glory of Christ, in Jesus' name.